Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we'll be reading A Marked Man by Paul Herring, which was first published in The People's Friend in January 1911. This story will be read for you by Friend Production Editor Judy Struth. Over to Judy. A box of cigars and an ashtray nudged Sir Gregory Dale's elbow as he turned up the reading lamp upon his desk. That's capital, he said. Wonderful man, Parker, for attending to the creature comforts. One in a thousand. He understands my little habits thoroughly and is conscientious in details. I believe Parker would manage to smooth some of the wrinkles from the face of care. Come, though. This will never do. I must close the door upon billiards. Sir Gregory closed the door gently, almost sorrowfully, and the disconcerting click of the billiard balls ceased. His two sons were home from college, and nothing delighted the judge's heart more than a game of billiards with his boys. Except, perhaps, a good cigar. But to the habitual criminal... Sir Gregory was a hard man who believed in a hard sentence. Having wiped his eyeglasses, the judge lit his first cigar. A light film of fragrant smoke floated towards the folding window, which stood slightly open. A perfectly satisfactory cigar, Sir Gregory remarked. Now, what have we here? He sat in his desk chair with the folding window at his back, and began to turn over the evidence in a case upon which he had to inform a jury who had maintained an impassive attitude towards the prisoner, apparently in a state of hopeless indecision. Now Sir Gregory was a relentless foe to indecision. A close examination of the evidence contracted his brows. There certainly is doubt in the case, he said. I have half a mind to give the prisoner the benefit of it. Plainly caught napping, he smiled the next moment. Bless my soul, what would the world think if it became known that Sir Gregory Dale personally admitted to himself over verbatim evidence that he had half a mind to let the prisoner go? With my judicial experience, the benefit of the doubt never did anyone any good yet. It is much better to be conclusively convicted than released on suspicion. The vital and conclusive item is to be found in this evidence somewhere. The fact that it has been overlooked by us all only increases its importance. The ash on the judge's cigar lengthened as his brows contracted more and more. The judge gave his complete attention to the papers before him. When the crisp cigar ash collapsed and fell upon them, it would probably disturb him and he would look up at the clock on the mantel shelf. That is doubtless what would have happened, but a man's shadow at the window intervened. 
the window itself was silently drawn open from the outside, and the man entered. His shadow remained partly outside, owing to the position of the judge's reading lamp. The study itself was lighted by a subdued electric cluster. The man who had stealthily entered the room coughed. Sir Gregory moved his head, and the cigar ash fell in disorder upon the evidence before him. The grey glitter behind the judge's eyeglasses took in the situation. The intruder was Inspector Attenborough of Scotland Yard, and removing the bowler he wore, he said, I beg your pardon, Sir Gregory, for entering in this way. It certainly is a surprise visit, the judge said dryly, but you are a man who knows his business, Attenborough, and I am quite ready to listen to your explanation. You know Rodney, the bank forger, is at liberty again, Sir Gregory. The man I sentenced to five years at Porchester Assizes? Exactly, Sir Gregory, and he served his sentence. Yes, I know. He was released about three weeks ago, Attenborough. I am perfectly acquainted with this man's record. Yes, sir, but not with his present whereabouts. They are not of any interest to me. I'm afraid they ought to be, sir. If you'll allow me to express an opinion, you're doing wrong not to take precautions against Rodney. Close the window, have a cigar and tell me what you're here for. Thank you, Sir Gregory. I've got several men watching the road, so you'll excuse me not staying to smoke it here. Certainly. Take two or three with you. Have a nip of whisky anyhow. It's a dark, raw night. You like these cigars, don't you, Attenborough? Like them? I always said, Sir Gregory, that little lot you were kind enough to forward with your compliments was the best case that ever Scotland Yard had. Ah, Attenborough. Everyone seems to appreciate my cigars, and very few my sentences. That's to the point, Sir Gregory. Rodney didn't appreciate that five years. Go on, I've not lost sight of the fact that my study has been burglariously entered by an officer from Scotland Yard. To warn you against him, sir, I saw you at your desk with the light full on you, and it struck me your attitude positively invited a bullet in the back, from any man with criminal intentions in his head and a revolver in his pocket. Rodney possesses both, sir. I thought I'd push the window open and let you see how easy it would be for him to shoot you before you could summon help. The bell push might as well be miles off, sir. You'd never reach the telephone. You'd never get up from your chair, sir. Excuse me putting the case bluntly. The servants would find you still sitting at your desk, Sir Gregory. Not the servants, Attenborough. My two boys are at home. They're in the billiard room, and it's nearest. You must spend an evening with us when you can spare one. The detective thanked Sir Gregory for his invitation and dwelt on his kindness. Where the deuce do you find all these amazing traits in my character? The judge replied whimsically. No one else pretends to discover them. It's perhaps because I'm a tech, sir. You leave clues behind and I follow them up. A good cigar is a good clue, Sir Gregory. But I don't want to pick up your dead body on the study floor. Nonsense! You can't make me turn a hair. But believe me, sir, Rodney means business. He's told his pals that he intends to put two people out of the way before the police take him again. The officer who arrested him last time 
and the judge who sentenced him. Then it's between you and me. Yes, sir, but Rodney's got a wholesome fear of me. I'd rather get on his nerves. Don't you think, Inspector, the same remark applies to me? I rather fancied I was Rodney's bete noir. Of the two, I'm inclined to think he'll have a go at you first, sir. He doesn't care to try conclusions with a Scotland Yard man of my standing. The animosity's there, sir, but the heart isn't. Sir Gregory's tone was decided. You're touching my professional pride, Attenborough, he said. I don't agree with you. I believe Rodney fears the judge who sentenced him more than he does the detective who arrested him. I've tested it, sir, the inspector replied stubbornly. We know he's hiding in the hedges or ditches of the countryside with a loaded six-shooter. I've walked past all the likeliest dark places to let him have a go at me. Naturally, you'd think he'd blaze away. And in my opinion, I've passed him at least a half a dozen times in the dark. You're a cool hand, Attenborough, and you take chances. But smart as you are, I'll wager a box of these capital cigars Rodney dreads me more than he does you. It'll be as good as promotion to smoke those cigars, sir. Well, you're not promoted yet, the judge said as he fizzed soda water into a second nip of whisky. Look me up again if you take Rodney. I believe he's in your grounds at the present moment, Sir Gregory. That's all right, Inspector. He'll be easier for you to find there. Now I'm busy. Good night, sir, Attenborough said, as he slipped through the folding window and into the shadows of the night. The judge closed the folding window, glanced round the study, and taking down a little mirror, placed it upon his desk in front of the verbatim report. He altered the position of the reading lamp, placing it so that any face at the window would be reflected onto the mirror before him. These measures of precaution against an intruder were inadequate, but Sir Gregory did not consider the matter any further. He lit his second cigar, but did not permit himself the luxury of a whisky and soda. That was against his habit, until he had decided what course he meant to take in dealing with a case. I can't help thinking that Attenborough was unnecessarily melodramatic, the judge muttered. He put me out and spoiled the sedative effects of my first cigar. Confounded nonsense to think an ex-convict would sooner remove a detective than a judge. Supposing Rodney is waiting to attempt my life, doesn't it rather prove that his animosity is greater toward me? Yes, of course, but it was which of us he feared most we were discussing. If he really let slip a chance of shooting Attenborough from an ambush, it shows the inspector inspired him with a certain vague fear. But if he ventured to visit me, I think I could put the fellow into a positive panic. Within a few minutes, Sir Gregory's attention was entirely taken up with the papers spread out before him. Half an hour passed. Once more, a stealthy shadow stood at the window. This time, it was the slouching figure of a man in muddy, mist-sodden clothes. A man with little, gleaming, crafty eyes and a brutal, pugilistic face. It was Rodney, the ex-convict, whose visit had been foreshadowed by Attenborough of Scotland Yard. Rodney's movements were more insidious than the inspector's. 
he watched the judge for a few seconds and produced a revolver. The shooting of Sir Gregory in the back could have been easily accomplished from outside the window, but presumably Rodney was not satisfied. His instinct was to open windows, and his vengeful spirit required that he should see the face of the judge who had condemned him to penal servitude, when he himself was condemned to death. Rodney wished to see the expression upon Sir Gregory's features when the bright barrel of the revolver gleamed into his grey eyes. In short, he wanted to see Sir Gregory die, recognising who had killed him. These details formed such an important part of Rodney's programme that he opened the window and insinuated himself into the study. With the revolver hand crooked across his breast, he stood so close behind Sir Gregory that his shadow fell over the judge's shoulder, across the outspread papers, and directly onto the mirror. The glinty movement of the revolver being raised to a level called Sir Gregory's attention to the reflection in the mirror. Rodney was behind him with the revolver, ready to shoot him dead. That was the fact disclosed on the polished surface. He saw himself in three positions, lying dead at the desk with his head upon the evidence, with a legal doubt in it, collapsed upon the carpet, and fallen back at the feet of the man he had sent to five years' penal servitude. The fragrance of his last cigar lingered on his palate. He had smoked a good cigar to the end. Singular that everything ended in grey ashes. He heard the click of billiard cues across the table he could not see. He wondered which of the boys he could not see would win the game they were playing. The game he could not see. He wished he had given that poor devil the benefit of the doubt. The jury would probably convict him now. Juries suffered from nerves when a thing like this occurred. The facets of Sir Gregory's brain flashed all this upon his mind in an instant. The raised revolver dominated the mirror. Actions do not always speak louder than words. In proof of this, there is the fact that without moving, the judge exclaimed, Oh, there you are, Parker, at last. I rang twice. Kindly tell Inspector Attenborough to step in from the billiard room. Say I'm sorry to interrupt his game, but I wish to consult him about tomorrow's execution at Porchester Prison. As he spoke, Sir Gregory wondered what sensation he should experience when the first bullet struck him. But the revolver was not fired. Rodney's arm fell rigidly to his side and he slunk stealthily through the open window. When his reflection was gone from the mirror, the judge breathed easier. Within a few seconds, he rose from the desk and poured out a stiff glass of whisky. After all, I'll give our prisoner the benefit of the doubt, he decided. And I'll give Attenborough of Scotland Yard the benefit of the doubt as well. I used his name and it was certainly effective enough. Perhaps after all he was right. Whether he won them or not, I'll give him a box of these capital cigars. And if I get the chance, I'll give Mr Rodney ten years. Nothing like all-round generosity. The judge was at the billiard table with his boys when Inspector Attenborough personally brought the information that he had arrested Rodney in the neighbourhood. And, 
as there were several counts against the ex-convict, Sir Gregory got his chance. A picture-perfect retirement. Just when mid-Staffordshire couple Trish Viner and Bev Marchant thought retirement couldn't get any better, they joined the Oddfellows. Before the coronavirus lockdown, this meant a busy calendar full of social activities like day trips, coffee mornings and dinner clubs. But Trish and Bev are also grateful to be part of the wider support network that the Friendship Society offers its members. Not only have they had the chance to meet new people and try new things, but they have also been able to give back to those in need. And Trish has even put her knitting skills to good use making soft toys in aid of the Air Ambulance, a cause supported by her local Oddfellows branch. Whether you're keen to give something back to your local community, or simply looking to enjoy some good company, Oddfellows could be right for you. Visit oddfellows.co.uk or call 0800 028 1810 today for a free information pack. Now. Let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. Before the break, you heard A Marked Man by Paul Herring, which was first published in The People's Friend in January 1911. That was narrated for us by Judy from the production team. Judy joins me now. Hello, Judy. Hello. And I'm also joined by Marion from the features team. Hello, Marion. Hello. And David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hi there. So, a marked man. We had a discussion just before we started recording about the character of the judge, and it turns out that uh, once again, for the second episode in a row, I disagree with the panel. Um, I I feel like I should use my power to convene a new panel that agrees with me, but uh, (laughs) I I don't really have the time for that. All right, I'm off. (laughs) Um, so the the character of the judge, what I did think about it, um, Sir Gregory, was that the character is established very quickly. It only takes the author really a couple of sentences to give you a very strong impression of the character, whether you like him or not. So the first couple of sentences are, uh, he's talking about creature comforts. He's on about smoking fancy cigars and drinking whiskey. He has a servant or a butler. Um, called Parker. I I thought he immediately sounded incredibly condescending and self-indulgent, but I understand that amongst the the body of the Kirk here, you had different opinions. Well, you can't deny that he does sound all of those things, but I think once you get into it a bit, there's there's quite a lot of humour to it. You get the impression he's not a bad soul for all he's condescending and self-indulgent. He's also a man that really cares for his kids. I know he's, he's quite affectionate towards his boys. Yeah, that's what got me as well. Which came, which came in very quickly, but then obviously he switches to professional mode. And then in that mode, he's always right. Do you think he'd be a nightmare to play billiards against? Because <laughs> that, that's what he talks about, playing billiards with his boys. But I bet you, you know, they foul the ball or something and he'll be like, ah. Yeah, competitive dad. <laughs> I bet he lets them win. <laughs> no, maybe he threatens them with jail. <laughs> that that would be in keeping with his his judicial experience. That this was a line that caught my attention actually. Um, when he's reading the case, he says, "Within my judicial experience, the benefit of the doubt never did anyone any good yet. 
it is much more better. It is much more better. Good lord! <laughs> it is much better to be conclusively convicted than released on suspicion. I've got that one noted as well. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I've got that underlined. <laughs> that sort of seems to say he's like, I've. Uh, you might be innocent, but I'd rather claim you were guilty. It, I guess it depends which which end of the transaction you're on yes. as to which is better in that case. If you're the one being conclusively convicted, I guess you might not agree with the judge on that one. No, I think it comes through, doesn't it? In the whole in the whole of the, the story, is that he he doesn't like shades of grey. Everything is black and white. I am the best. You are not the best. I am more important. You're not so important. Mm. But I think that comes with being a judge, doesn't it? You know, they don't like being challenged. Yeah. A judge or a sub. <laughs> <laughs> That's an ominous message to all the writers listening. <laughs> it definitely comes across, though, obviously, he, he has the conversation with Attenborough, the police officer who casually breaks into his house, <laughs> uh, where Attenborough say, is kind of trying to impress upon him the danger of his situation because this escaped convict is around and is going to be coming for him. And at every turn, Sir Gregory's kind of like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I just, uh, like I'm, I'm kind of, I'm above this. It doesn't bother me. I'm not frightened of that. Yes. Yeah. He wouldn't. He wouldn't dare to touch a man of my standing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think he, and it's, it's genuine as well. There's not even. I mean, well, he kind of does something with the mirror so that he can reposition stuff. I mean, it's all a little bit kind of. It's very, very light touch. Like he really doesn't. But it's kind of like doing it nominally because. He's been kind of told to do it, but he really doesn't believe in it at all. I know. I fear if someone said a criminal was lurking in my back garden waiting to kill me, I would be locking the window at the very least. Yes. I'd probably be warning the people in the other room as well. Yeah. <laughs> or tell them to make lots more noise and you just can stay quiet in the other room. Or calling for the very efficient servant, no blunderbuss or something. <laughs> Parker, get the gun. Exactly. Yeah, stand by the window, my good man. <laughs> <laughs> I did think he's he's a bit lenient considering his um, no shades of grey attitude. He's he's rather lenient with the police officer who does break into his house. I think I would be rather annoyed by that. If, if I, I'd come across someone and he said, oh, I was just trying to explain to you how easy it would be to do, I would be asking why did you not use the door and then use your words to tell me how easy it <laughs> well, Because he wanted to demonstrate it, obviously. And you'd think that having it having been demonstrated, he would be annoyed at having been found, you know, failing, if you like. Mm -hmm. Instead, he re rewards him with a cigar. Yeah. So it's like, here you go, well done. <laughs> well, that, that was the other thing. That was the other thing that made me laugh. They've obviously got quite a good social relationship going on. The judge and this detective. Yes, there have been cigars in the past. Pretty hand in glove. They exchange cigars and whiskies and, you know, he's to come round for another evening at the judge's house when he can spare one. It's all very cosy. I really liked Attenborough. I like the fact that he's um, he's deference, but the deference is kind of like tongue in cheek. Yes. It's just like, okay, yeah, let him get on with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he knows him well. I, I thought that as, as a clue to the judge's personality um when the judge says no one thinks that i'm a good man attenborough actually hints i must be because i'm a detective you leave good clues behind suggesting that there is something under the surface maybe that attenborough can see and that's how they get on so well i think that's one of the things that convinced me that the judge was less obnoxious than he seems to be at a first acquaintance because he's obviously quite well aware of how he appears to other people 
And there's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I think, about the way he presents himself. That he's maybe putting it on as a as a symbol of his status. Of his authority, yeah. But then, unfortunately, it degenerates into what we will refer to as a masculine competition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> about who is, uh, who is to be feared more or disliked more by the escaped convict and who should or shouldn't be frightened by it. It reminded me of two kids in the playground. My dad's better than your dad. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's just a lot of one-upmanship, isn't it? <laughs> but it's, it was quite interesting as well where Sir Gregory was saying, um, I believe Rodney fears the judge who sentenced him more than he does the detective who arrested him. So it's all about f- he fears me, but um, the policeman says, I'd rather get on his nerves. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> When what he means is he's more scared of me. So he's totally playing that down. Yeah, that is really well understated. Mm-hmm. I think the bit that got me as well when he turns around and says, like, I believe he's in your grounds at the present moment, at the, at the present moment, Sir Gregory. And it's like, hold on. It's like, well, why are you in the house? Why aren't you outside trying to find the guy? <laughs> <laughs> and why are you stopping for a cigar break? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is the point. If, if you knew he was prowling about outside, you would be at the very least locking your window or sending... What's his name? Parker, did you say? Parker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sending Parker out with the, the sawn-off shotgun. He does close his window. Slight <laughs> concession. <laughs> but then Rodney, of course, like some kind of... Actually, I got a kind of horror story vibe from the bit where Rodney breaks into the room because the way that it's described is it's all very uh, sort of quiet and unsettling and he's, he's kind of suddenly in the room and he's suddenly behind yeah. him and he... Yeah raises the revolver before the judge really knows he's there. Yeah, it's almost like film directions, the way he describes that. Yes, it is, actually. You can kind of just see the camera panning across. Yeah. And they have a bit where the the judge says uh, he sees himself in three different situations. You know, he's dead at the desk and Mm -hmm. he's being discovered by somebody. And Mm -hmm. that, that was a bit sort of like a film as well, like the three different things that could happen. But even there, there's a little lighter moment where he talks about with his head on the evidence, with a legal doubt in it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Couldn't bear that. (laughs) I don't care about dying, but I don't wish to die with a doubt in my head. I just thought it was really interesting because they always say like your life flashes before your eyes. And it's like his life didn't flash before his eyes. The three different outcomes, almost like the legal evidence flashed before his eyes. It's like, you know, this is how it would be presented. These are the three options that might end up being presented in court. Yeah. So even in that, he was kind of... in his professional mode, though he does go on to talk about, you know, the click of the billy, billy cues across the table next door and everything and being the last sound that he hears. And there was a bit more of a humane element to it when you think about, you know, the taste of the cigar still on his mouth and things like that. But it was less like, that's not what would be going through my head at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Even that was quite funny, wasn't it? He'd smoked a good cigar to the end, singular that everything ended in grey ashes. A very important observation. <laughs> He does think quite quickly when it when it comes to trying to get out of the situation. Absolutely. But I wonder how much of that is a gamble. How much of that is a gamble that he kind of thought, oh, maybe I should just test this theory or not then. I'd half expect a, a piece of exposition saying, oh, well, these are the three options. I can either pretend that he's next door or I can do something else that will distract him or whatever it is. Um, rather than actually that kind of coming out of the blue, which is a nice touch from a writing point of view, as opposed to just kind of coming with it. Yeah, because there's uh, he, he speaks out loud quite a lot in the in the little bit leading up to that, and it's kind of like exposition in the sense that he's telling you, this is how I think about this, and this is what I do here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then that bit seems to dispense with the exposition and it just kind of jumps you into the yeah into the scenario yeah. which it, it seems to make it slightly more believable i guess yeah yeah i love the way he also drops in about the fact there's going to be an execution tomorrow and that's what he wants a discussion about and that's where kind of like you could i could almost hear rodney gulp like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's just let's just drop this word in here <laughs> I could imagine a director having so much fun with this and actually making it quite camp. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it could be a lot of fun. But th- I did think there was, you know, that that undercurrent of humour was all the way through it. I don't think we were ever meant to take it seriously. No, I got the wrong end of the stick. I got the wrong end of the gavel. <laughs> yeah. No, maybe you didn't. <laughs> I'm now imagining uh, a marked man starring Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. And Sid James is the as Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> so who's going to play Parker then? Jim Dale. Oh, that would be brilliant casting. <laughs> no, 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 no. It would have to be Breslau, Brian Breslau. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Peter Butterworth. Ah, I'm trying to think on who that is. So now we've done carry on cigaring. <laughs> <laughs> Do let us know on Facebook and Twitter who you would cast in this. Story. Yes. <laughs> We should this should, this could be the movement on from the podcast. We could do a little play for today. What with deceased film stars? That would make it tougher. <laughs> it might. I don't know. C- CGI that'll be fine. <laughs> they brought Peter Cushing back to life in that Star Wars movie a couple of years ago. <laughs> True. Uh, anyway, in terms of writing style, that kind of we were speaking about the exposition and the way it kind of resolves itself in the the main action, but. Word choice is another thing that we wanted to talk about, simply because the word burglarious makes another appearance on Reading Between the Lines, <laughs> um, having first popped up in the McPeever Wrangles, The Burglar, which was the one that we recorded for our pilot episode, which I think we released actually in January. And Judy, both you and I had talked about how much we enjoyed this word in general. Yes. I didn't expect to have to say it again, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a happy accident. um, You were the narrator once again. I loved that word. I mean, I I adore words that we don't use anymore and and sort of finding out more about them and stuff. So, of course, when we saw this word in the story, that was me straight onto the internet to find out (laughs) where it was, where it had come from. And I looked up, Google have this lovely thing called an n-gram viewer, where you can put in a word and it'll give you a graph to show how common it's been over the ages. Oh, that's right up your street. It really is. And burglariously, much to my surprise, turns out to have a really huge incidence in the early 1800s, all the way, all the way up to about the Second World War. So start looking back in those. And where it comes up mostly is in legal case books, legal textbooks. Uh, There's an American one, for example, where it says every indictment for burglary was required at common law to contain the technical word burglariously. Oh, right. Okay. So that it's held that the offence was stated in the language of the statute. So the statutes, the the laws talk about burglariously entering a premises, for example. Okay. And so if you charge somebody, you have to use that word so that they know that the charge and the law match up to each other. And the other place where I was finding it was in law reports from places like um, the Old Bailey. And there was one that particularly pleased me. Well, that's probably the wrong word in the context, but 
caught my attention, I should say. There was a fair few where they give the accused's name and his age. So you've got things like Thomas Smith, 24, burglariously breaking and entering the dwelling house of William Walker and stealing therein two sheets and two pillowcases, comma, his property. And then you've got the prosecution evidence. And then what happens? So you've got policeman G325 gives his evidence and policeman G11 gives his and Mrs. Harriet Walker gives hers. And then prisoner statement before the magistrate you get. And prisoner says, I was coming down Compton Street. I saw the things lying. I was going to pick them up when the constable sees me. I was never on the house or on the wall or in the beer shop. I had been in it when it was open, but not since. Anyway, the jury got him banged to rights and he got nine months imprisonment. All that for picking something up off the off the floor? That's a bit harsh. No, he, he, did, he did indeed burglariously break and enter the dwelling house <laughs> of William Walker and still there in two sheets. <laughs> it must have been quite a common, must have been in common usage as well. You would think if if two separate authors were using it in a story for for a family magazine. Is it turning up in things like Penny Dreadfuls and stuff like that, which is where, you know, that kind of mass pulp fiction of the time. Detective stories, legally typed stories. No. I mean, McPeever, I guess he picked it up from from the law reports because you look in the local newspapers at the time and they quote it as well. They're quoting from the legal cases, burglariously entered, burglariously this, that, the other. Right, and that's how they would report it. Yeah, because when we spoke about the burglar and we, we were having the discussion about the word, we were kind of just saying, isn't it a great word and isn't it a shame that we don't use it anymore? But if A.P. MacDonald, obviously writing a completely different kind of story, that kind of humorous sketch that he does, using that word the readers would recognise it from the likes of the crime reports or the detective stories. It, it kind of adds to that level of sort of parody yeah. that A.P. MacDonald had going on in his stories. Yeah. I like also the idea that you burglariously enter someone's house uh, or burglariously break and enter someone's house as opposed to breaking and entering someone's house in another way, like accidentally. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like the detective did. <laughs> Well, something else I looked at said it had to be at night. Oh. So to be burglary, it had to be during the hours of darkness. Because if you break and enter during the hours of daylight, it's not burglary or it wasn't burglary. So what was it then? <laughs> yeah, that's my question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> not a lawyer. <laughs> to, just uh, an honest occupation. <laughs> <laughs> Although speaking about the author, Marion, you had done a wee bit more research into Mr. Herring as well. I did. I did. I because um, I quite like finding out who the writers were who wrote these older stories. I just think it's quite interesting to know a little bit more about them. But quite often you can't find out because there are either no names with the stories or the names aren't easy to find. Mm -hmm. But, of course, this this chap has got a delightful name of Paul Herring, and there are not shoals of those around. Uh. So... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I see what you did there. <laughs> so I did find an author called Paul Herring, who is based in Nottingham about the right time. And he was famous enough to have his obituary written in his local paper, which starts, Nottinghamshire has lost one of its leading authors by the death of Mr. Paul Herring, which occurred later Wednesday night at Nottingham General Hospital. Uh, he's my prime suspect for, for this writer. And if it is him, then he trained as a librarian in Nottingham. And he wrote a lot of thrillers for popular weeklies, it says. 
And then in 1893, he published Poetry and Short Stories. And then he started writing novels and more short stories. And they go on to name a lot of the magazines and papers that he wrote for. And unhappily, they don't actually mention the people's friend by name, which is quite annoying. But they do say, and lots of other magazines. Mm. It certainly sounds like it could be him, doesn't it? It's looking likely. I mean, I went and had a look in the kind of the official People's Friend records. And for this period, we do have a couple of little books that list the regular contributors who, you know, write more than once. So, you you know, that's where you'll find people like Annie S. Swan and stuff like that and all their contributions. And he's not listed at all. And I did some searching around to see whether he appeared in people's friend advertising and stuff like that and he's not there so this might be his one and only contribution it's a bit sad because i actually quite enjoyed the story and i quite enjoyed yeah, the style and <laughs> yeah i didn't mind it at all yeah um and it felt quite literary to me um there was lots of little in jokes lots of words that kind of I felt like I was going through a GCSE kind of literary criticism exercise at times, <laughs> thinking, oh, look, you know, the, he's obviously crafted every sentence. Mm. Is how I felt about yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, mm. if it is the same chap who is prolific, prolific short story writer by the look of him, that would fit. And the date sounds about right. You know, what date did he die? Is this where you say 1910? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 1938. Yeah, that that seems reasonable to me. I think you've got a pretty strong candidate there. And DC Thompson did. DC Thompson had people, um, commercial travellers and people like that, going out and te- speaking to writers in across England at that period. Um, so it's perfectly possible that it was just a chance meeting or something like that, or he sent it in. But um, you know, we certainly had a journeyman down in the north of England and the Midlands. The other famous person from Nottingham uh, in the DC Thompson world is Dudley D. Watkins was born there, the illustrator of the Bruins and the Willie. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. I wonder if they knew each other. Mm, doubt it, but who knows? This is far too much detective work for one podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you were saying there, David, there were, there were people that DC Thompson sent out. Um, were they people who would go foraging around for stories? or um, They'd be out... There might be adverts in the paper saying, you know, we're looking for new writers or something like that, or new illustrators, certainly later on for illustrators. Mm. Uh, so they'd be out and they'd, they'd have chance meetings. There'd be maybe adverts in the paper saying, you know, we're looking for new contributors. And if they were in the area, they'd call in and see them. Or it might be that they just get tipped off. Um, that's how Dudley D. Watkins was discovered because he was working for Boots in um, Nottingham doing kind of um, illustrations for window displays or in the in-house magazine. And um, he got picked up. Um, partly through that, um, you know, through a bit of word of mouth. So they said, oh, yeah, there's somebody you need to speak to, which makes me think if he's writing in the late 1800s, as Marion was pointing out, there's a good chance he's known in the area and someone's put him on. But at the same time, he could just just been put in the, you know, is easily sending it up to Dundee, to the offices of John Leng or, or, you know, to the Bank Street offices. And um, it had been just coming in as a random submission. But yeah, we certainly had people out and about. I wonder why we don't do that now. We don't get sent around to rove the countryside looking for <laughs> contributors. It'd be an interesting job, I think. I think a lot of these meetings happen in pubs and, you know, hotel bars and things like that. So, Well, that's a rule I'm willing to fulfil if, if it needs to be done. <laughs> and, that's, I th- and I think you've just answered your question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Towards the end of the story, it is revealed that um, Rodney comes in and gets frightened away 
And then Attenborough tells Sir Gregory he apprehended him. And in that section of the story, the judge seems to admit that maybe Attenborough was the scarier of the two of them. It seems to be kind of a climb down from his prideful position earlier on in the story. So do we think that that has changed him as a person, this this scary situation that he was completely dismissive of, and then kind of suddenly became very real for him? Uh, do we think that that's changed him as a person? It kind of does look like that a little bit, for the moment anyway, <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> As you know, whether he woke up in the morning and dismissed it all again, I don't know. But he said he would give the prisoner the benefit of the doubt, which he was categorically not going to do at the start of the story. I didn't feel it was a Damascan moment. It was, I don't think it was like the scales came down from his eyes and um, um, it was a big character change. Yeah, okay, he's, he's uh, giving the prisoner the benefit of the doubt, which he probably wouldn't have done. But I suspect this would be a one-off and that the next case would be just like back to the old... Uh, Sir Gregory. Was yeah, my it didn't. It didn't seem like it was a massive change of heart, but it was a, just a slight concession, which is maybe as far as he ever gets. Yes. <laughs> and even with Attenborough, he's not admitting that the guy was more afraid of Attenborough. He's just saying, "Well, I used his name, and it was effective enough." So <laughs> I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to admit I'm wrong, but <laughs> but he's obviously had his pride pricked a little bit. You know, it's just like, you know, there, there was a bit of that, um, as does Rodney, really, because, you know, he was all ready to come and do it. And I think Rodney's quite a proud person as well. I and mean, he's taking his kind of attempt to take, Sir Rod, uh, to take Sir Gregory out quite seriously. And he wanted to kind of almost see the whites of his eyes and be close up. He could have just shot him from the window and it would all have been over. But no, he wanted to do it professionally. And then, you know, the threat of being executed made his hand drop and but so his kind of like pride got pricked as well. And the only person who seems to come out of this really, really well is Attenborough, who's now got a nice box of cigars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> except, except that Attenborough's disposition of his officers around the garden can't have been that brilliant if there was nobody watching the window and the guy got in. <laughs> Maybe he was, it was all the cigars and whiskey distracted him. <laughs> yeah, he had two whiskeys before he went, didn't he? <laughs> This is kind of like typical people's friend ending for the period that, you know, you've got to have the kind of the moralistic element that mm -hmm. the, the man who's really proud is, you know, slightly dented. The badon gets his comeuppance. It's kind of, you know, the, it's a typical people's friend kind of short story wrap up to me compared to some of the other ones that we've looked at. All is well in the world and all ends as well. <laughs> ends well in the world. <laughs> you do see some of them that they kind of they're building towards a conclusion and then they seem to come to a grinding halt and then everything gets wrapped up so the the story kind of takes you on this whole journey of what what's happening on that night and then suddenly it's oh and attenborough told me later on that they apprehended him and da 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 da, da. it kind of uh, ties up all the loose ends yeah. i went and checked the hard copy of this because I always do this every time, and I've said it before. Um, you know, I go and look at the original source um, because sometimes they're constrained by how much they can get on a page and how the page has been laid out. And this one actually is a full page and then goes on to over onto a bit of the next page. So they obviously were giving it the room to do what it needed to do. Whereas some of them, where it feels a bit like a, the, the ending hit a wall, or they've had to, you know, they've only had three lines in which to wrap it all up. It has been literally the squeezing it on the page. <laughs> so. 
they, they gave this one um they gave this one the room it needed to breathe i felt you don't find that the writing's getting smaller and smaller as the column comes to the bottom of the page. <laughs> oh, the last page of your school jotter. It's like, I've got to get it all in. <laughs> um, so here's a question then. Uh, do you think, considering how he treats the case or how he intends to treat the case that he has in front of him and his general disposition, do you think that he, when he sentenced Rodney the first time, which... Uh, I believe off the top of my head was to 10 years. Uh, was it being too harsh there? Does that mean that Rodney has a legitimate beef, uh, which of course shouldn't be uh, re- resolved with a revolver to the skull? But um, <laughs> does it, is there maybe room for Rodney has been mistreated and that's why he wants revenge? Apparently if he was burgling during the day, it wasn't even a crime. <laughs> I think that the... the- the thing that would make me think not is that very last line where it says there were several counts against the ex-convict. I think he was done as a forger, wasn't it, rather than robbery. But I suspect that he's probably doing other things. He's an achiever. I think I think achievers should be rewarded. <laughs> he's done well. I think forgery would have been quite a major crime. So... I mean, I don't know. I'm, sentencing is not my kind of area of expertise. Looking at those old Bailey reports before was quite interesting because the, the guy who nipped into the pub to get the bedding, he got seven months. But there were a few other burglariously entered offences around that report. And they were getting seven years for what looked like really minor little burglaries. So, you know, it's a, quite a harsh regime. Absolutely. I'm, I'm assuming that his final sentence uh, was probably a little bit longer. Premeditated murder, isn't it, I suppose? But all, albeit that it didn't happen, attempted, sorry, attempted murder. Is it even attempted? Because he didn't get anywhere near it, did he? He didn't pull, didn't pull the trigger. And it also seems a bit like that window is a revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> it's a window with a, a window with an identity crisis. <laughs> People are going in and out all day like the clappers. He, maybe he just thought it was the door and wanted to visit <laughs> Try that in the people's friend office. Now, come in through the window one day and see how Angela reacts. <laughs> As we're on the first floor, I'm sure she'd be very impressed. <laughs> My knees aren't good enough to pull that off. <laughs> he said hastily. <laughs> so on that legally murky note, I think we might leave it for this episode. Um, so it just remains for me to say thank you to Judy for her narration. And thank you to David and Marion for joining us for the discussion. And thank you for listening at home as well. And until this week of our friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the friend archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8, and that special offer is available until the 31st of May 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end.
friend and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend that to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure the friend to friends in trouble recommend they won't be happy till they get the friend <laughs>